0: claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. You're listening to The Leaf Report with Canadian Press National Hockey writer Jonas Siegel and The Athletic TO's James Myrtle.
2: James, you're getting distracted by the candy on uh, our desk here. Um, so let's, let's talk about what's kind of going on right now. And that's Morgan Riley, uh, hurt on Tuesday night against Buffalo. Kind of a weird play. His leg kind of gets caught. Maybe it's an ankle. Who knows? You might know. So we can, we can talk about that. But what do you think in terms of like the pecking order of who they could afford to miss? Is he probably behind just Anderson and Matthews in terms of importance to the Leafs?
1: I was thinking about this. I mean, the piece that I wrote last night after the injury was that at least with Riley, they have Gardner who can step up. And at least, I don't think there's that big of a drop-off. I know some of the analytics guys would say that Gardner is better than Riley, which, I mean, I don't know. We, we could debate that if you want. But the, the tough thing is going to be what happens further down. Like, I think what's going to happen is... Gardner and Zaitsev are going to play an incredible number of minutes. They're probably going to play 27 minutes in the games that Riley misses, which I think is okay. I think they'll they'll be okay in that. But then I think Hunwick and Polak are going to be the second pair, and then Carrick and Corrado, which is going to be the third pair, are not going to play that much. So you get into that situation, and uh, I mean, I think Polak has been, you can argue he's been the worst player on the whole team this year, aside from maybe... I don't know Enroth or or something, some guy that that has hardly played. So if Polak is going to be back up in the twenty minute range, that's going to be a problem. That's that's the only thing that the worst absence would be Anderson or Matthews. Those are kind of the two MVPs. And Riley's Riley's in the top five for sure.
2: Yeah. Well, but that's the point. Like, if you if they lost Anderson, you're getting McIlhenny, and that's bad. If you lost Matthews, they have other centers, but it's, it's kind of the ripple effect. You're not getting any close to the production that he offers, but it's funny. You make two two really good points, and Babcock brought this up after the game against Buffalo where he said it's, it's not really like one of the big effects of the injury is kind of the ripple effect that it has in your lineup in that, like you said, suddenly you're going to play certain guys more, and there's that problem in that they can potentially risk injury because suddenly they're playing more. I'm not sure how much we can actually quantify that. But I think your point is the key. And I just wrote a little story about Gardner and Riley and everything that's going on. And I don't think I hit on enough of the effect that Polak Hunwick has. And that's kind of more the story because Gardner can probably do exactly the same job as Riley can. It's now, instead of having gardner Carrick as your second pair, which is fine, suddenly you have Polak hunwick which is, you know, they've been 45% together at possession this year. That's bad. And then he's not going to play Carrick and Corrado. So, like, the ripple effect, I guess is what I'm saying, is more important than Riley being out.
1: What I've really noticed lately is that Carrick's minutes are down. He's been the number six guy on the team quite a bit. I mean, he's not getting a lot of power play. He doesn't get any penalty kill time. Some games he's been down, I think, like 13, 14 minutes. So, and I, we already know that Babcock doesn't trust Corrado. So I just wonder if we see them play 11 minutes in the games, and then that's going to mean a huge boost. The, and the biggest thing isn't just more minutes for Hunwick and Polak. The, the problem is they're going to be playing better players on the second pair.
2: Well, so that's really important because if they were at forty-five percent, basically going against third and fourth lines, and now you're going to put them against second and third lines, that's not good. But what? But what I'm actually, I'm not surprised. But I think it's positive that it is Gardner, the guy who's stepping into Riley's void, because like there was a small thought that maybe Babcock goes with the veteran, like the guy he trusts, you know, Hunwick. But it's clear, like you can't argue that Gardner is the perfect replacement in this sense so let's talk a, a little bit about that uh the year that he's had what do you think like has been the biggest step forward for him i it's hard to point to one thing but all the underlying numbers suggest he's not only good like he's potentially elite do you think that's too big a leap
1: yeah i'm not quite ready to i, I know some of the stats guys have gardner as like one of the like the, some people say, he's like the top twenty defenseman in the league, which is too far for me. But he, I think this is the best he's played with the Leafs. I think this is the most the Leafs have trusted him since he's been here. There's very few times I, I can think of where Babcock's talking about a mistake he's made or anything like that. I think Gardners had fewer mistakes that have led directly to goals that I can remember. You know, I, I try. That's why on Twitter sometimes when I talk about when they get a goal against, I try and ascribe it to certain D pairs or, or forwards or whatever because it helps me remember who caused those plays. And I don't remember Gardner really having very many this year. And he looks supremely confident with the puck there. I mean, there's a lot of instances where I like when he, he kind of circles back in their own zone and looks for a play and looks for a play and either skates it or passes it. You know, he's got a lot of weapons in his arsenal. And he's 26. He's going to be 27, in I believe, in the summer you know, he's really come into uh, he's got just got a lot of confidence, I think, is, is where he's at right now. And he was kind of saying that after the game, that he just feels really, really comfortable. You look at offensively, it's going to be his best year. He's on pace for his best year by far. And he's on the top power play unit, too. In the top power play, they, the Leafs have had a very, very dangerous power play. I didn't know necessarily that Gardner had that in him to quarterback a number one power play unit, but the way— the Leafs' power play functions isn't really. You don't need a guy with a big shot back there, which Gardner typically hasn't had. It's you need like a distributor that can find the guys on either side, like the way they're doing. They're splitting Nealander and Matthews on either side. They got a guy in front of the net, uh, and then they have kind of like a rover who I think is typically Kadri uh, on the other point. Yeah. So anyway, I, I just I think Gardner's had a great year. His evolution in terms of the power play, they're using. They're going to use him a lot more on the penalty kill now with Riley out. He said he's in all of those penalty kill meetings. You know, so that's why the big minute boost is coming, because he can play both special teams and the top pair.
2: Well, you know what it's interesting to me is it can kind of it kind of shows you that a coach can it might be too strong to say no, actually it's not too strong to say a coach can kill a career. Like if a coach does not like you or doesn't see your value, that can that can destroy you. Like and and that wasn't happening to that degree with Gardner and Carlisle. But I talked to Gardner about this maybe a month back. I did a story on it. And he said like basically that Randy Carlisle, we know this, like had no confidence in him. And because Jake Gardner knew that Randy Carlisle didn't have confidence in him, he wasn't confident. He was afraid to make mistakes. And now I think the big difference is Babcock just knows what he brings and values what he brings. So Gardner feels confident that he can just go out there and play. And I I think we need to think of it like in our own terms, like imagine having a boss who knows who, who you know, doesn't think much of you. It's hard to work like that. It's hard to do good work. And I think that's what happened to some degree with Gardner. And I think that's why he has success. But to your point with some of the underlying numbers, I was looking at it today, possession, he's like top 25 ish scoring chance percentage he's right up there like i don't know maybe it just doesn't look like he should be in that conversation but maybe he is i don't know
1: yeah it's interesting the the whole carlisle and i think part of it too is the systems that they're playing like babcock system seems to it needs someone like gardner it needs a d that can really carry the puck and can can push in on the forecheck like i thought it was interesting that Uh, Guy Boucher in Ottawa called them a five-man forecheck the Leafs because they've been so aggressive offensively they need guys that can skate really well and how many guys skate better than Jake Gardner so I I think that's why he and then you think of the system that Carlisle was using and it was not a very aggressive forecheck it was not a skate it through the neutral zone it was a lot of those they were doing those really silly long passes all the way up all the way up to JVR standing on the far left blue line and he would just touch it and it would go into the zone and then they chase in after that like that's not Gardner's game Gardner's game isn't I remember watching him under Carlisle try and play like tough in the corners and try and use his body and all those kinds of things and it's just it looks so awkward and no wonder he didn't have confidence it was you know I think that so that's part of it but also I think Babcock better recognizes his strengths and lets him play to those
2: it's funny you mentioned that. He brought that up, or maybe I brought it up, but he said, like, never in my career before have I ever been asked or tried to play physical. And that was, like, a big thing at the time with Randy is Randy's like, you need to be harder. You need to, you know, be physical. Because that's, like, the way, I don't know, forever, that people thought you had to play defensively. Like, it's, it's, I don't know, it's the modern defenseman where – you're just leaning on your ability to skate, your your stick work, your skill, your positioning. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a different way to think about what's a good defenseman. And this kind of brings me to what I wanted to ask you next, is you kind of hit on it. But is it possible that maybe Gardner's a better person to play in those top minutes than Riley? Like, and maybe, I don't know, maybe your top pair is... Gardner, Zaitsev, and maybe your second pair is Riley and someone else long-term, or, or do you think Riley is the better, higher play as a number one D?
1: I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. I don't... I think that that's a hard question to answer. If you look at just possession, Gardner is better, but I think what's misleading about that is that Riley spent all of last year paired with Hunwick against other teams' top lines and... Well, I guess Gardner played a lot with Polak last year, but I mean, a lot of, I do. I, here's what I know. I know I've heard from other teams about Gardner that they view him as a guy who has done very, very well in terms of possession against not top competition, that he's had generally sheltered minutes. You know, there's a stat that, uh, I think it's Tyler Dello, who used to work for the Oilers, has that he looks at percentage of ice time That players play against the stars like the percentage of ice time that they play against number one I don't have the numbers for them but uh, Riley has one of the highest in the league just because of how hard matched uh, Babcock has gone with Riley against other teams top lines so that obviously drops Gardner's much lower and then you know there's a debate in analytics about quality of competition and how much it matters and all that but I think it matters. That's why
2: I think you can't just look at the raw totals and say Gardner's better, which it seems like some people do. Well, and that's why I think we can look at Riley and suggest he's done really pretty well in, in that role. Like he's, all the underlying numbers would suggest he's doing just fine despite that. And I agree with you. Like, I think you look at who he's been matched up against, like it's now two years that, or I guess a year and a half that he's been matched up against top lines and fared well. Like you can look at all the indicators and it would suggest that he's fared well. I don't know. I just, I guess it's just an interesting long term question. But either way, if you have Riley on one pair, Gardner on another, Zaitsev on one pair, they're kind of just looking at that block that's fourth defenseman that they need. I don't know. I guess that's their long term need. I wonder how they get it. Like, how do you think you eventually get that?
1: Did you see some of the discussion on Twitter today? I, I, I've had a bunch of people ask me about this recently is Kevin Chattenkirk and how he's going to be a UFA, um, going to want to play for a good team, which, I mean, one of the things the Leafs open the door for by having a good season and potentially making the playoffs is there's going to be more players that are probably going to want to play for them. And they're going to look at that and say, hey, if I go there, I can be one of the people that helps put that over the top. And I can't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast. I don't think we have. I think I mentioned this on a different podcast that I did when someone asked me about Shattenkirk. What the Leafs could do, their cap situation is very, very good the next two years, for sure, until they start getting those huge contracts to Marner and and Matthews. They could offer a lot of money on a two-year deal to Shattenkirk and probably get him. Like, a lot of money. Like, go way over what his value is, but just do it on a two-year deal. Or you could give him a three- or four-year deal and really heavily front-load it, and he would be easier to move to another team. I kind of like the idea, like, they have so much cap space next year, especially, and probably the year after as well. There just aren't that many contracts that come up. They're going to have to pay Zaitsev, who I probably going to be, I don't know what, like $4 million probably, a little bit more than $4 million. But if you could bring Shattenkirk in, like, I'm talking like $8 million, $8.5 million. Like, you, you go way over what his AAV would be on another team. That's a way to say, you know what, while we've got these guys in our entry-level contracts, let's add definitely a top four defenseman. And I know that he's another guy that the analytics people think is, is a top pair defenseman. Very, very good offensively. I don't know. What do you think of that?
2: It's interesting. Like, I just wonder from Shattenkirk's spot, what, whether that makes sense for him. Like this is, I believe his first shot at UFA. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. I think he's 27. So I guess my question for you be would be, is a top four of Riley, Zaitsev, have Gardner shot good enough. And I guess it, it Maybe it's not even about that, maybe it's just about what they end up doing on that third pair, but I like the idea of it. I mean, so you're talking like two years eight sixteen million, something like that. yeah, I don't know. is that good enough? Like do you think that top four is good enough? And I guess the longer term question is, you and I were talking about this the other day, like what are those second contracts gonna be like for Marner, Matthews, Nealander? That's where it'll start to really get interesting where their chess game is gonna have to be like masterful, no?
1: They're gonna be huge. I mean, I think Matthews is gonna get ten and a half, eleven million dollars a year. I mean that's if they can get him for less than that, then because I think with Matthews you just give him max years and you try and get the dollars as reasonable as you can, and then he's gonna out earn as long as he's healthy, he's gonna out earn that contract no problem. Comparatively. The interesting thing is gonna be what Connor McDavid signs for. I think Edmonton is less, oh, I don't know how I want to put this. I was going to say they're less maybe savvy with some of these things, but, I mean, there's a bit of a different management group in there, so it's hard to say. Like, I don't think they're going to play hardball with McDavid. I just wonder if McDavid gets, like, some totally outlandish number. The biggest number around the league is still $10.5 a year, he probably tops that. I mean, maybe he gets, I don't know what he gets, 10.8 or 10.9 or... McDavid's going to get a huge number. So I think that it's, depending on what Matthews does in his first two, two and a half years, how that matches to what McDavid did in his first two, and a half two, two and a half years. You know, if if Matthews can start matching the point totals that McDavid has, which I don't think he can, but if, if, he, if he does, especially not if he plays with Hyman and Brown, he's not going to be putting up the points that, that McDavid is. You know, so... Maybe that keeps Matthews around ten. I I don't, but and then and then Marner's probably I mean, he's on pace for seventy points. You know, maybe Marner's probably going to be able to ask for seven and a half million a year. And then Nealander's on pace for what fifty five, almost sixty, and he's been great on the power play. You know, that they, so they're going to have three guys, three young guys. Let's just put a ballpark figure on. It. They're going to have to pay twenty to twenty five million, probably higher, probably closer to the twenty five side. You know, that that changes the equation because right now they're not paying those guys very much money.
2: Well, and that gets into, like, when how you handle all these different contracts. And that's why, like, Kadri ends up looking like a really good deal. We knew it was at the time. But, like, if this continues and then you have to sign those guys, him being at, what's what's the cap number? It's not very much for what he is. Same thing with Riley. Um, but, like, let's say McDavid gets 12. Like, that's not crazy. Like, I think Taves and Kane got 10 and a half. So if McDavid gets 12, that means Matthew's probably getting 11 or 10 and a half or something in that ballpark. Anyway, I guess just where we're getting to is Brandon Pridham, going to be really important, like how they handle the cap and how they manage all these things. We were just talking about this just because we were like spitballing about Tavares in 2018 and how they would fit that. Do you want to rehash that? Or do you think it's just looking too far ahead?
1: Well, I think if he's there, you go for it. It's the same thing with Stamkos, right? If he's there, you make an offer, and if you can get him, then you move other pieces around. I mean, it's not like it's not like they're not going to be able to trade Kadri or whatever piece they're going to have to move. But the, all this stuff, especially with those entry level contracts ending and the big numbers that those guys are going to get, that's why I don't like signing JVR. It's not that I don't like JVR; like JVR is fantastic. He's great to watch. Like I love that goal that he scored last night against. Uh, um, Buffalo. I forget what game we were at last night. Like, JVR has unbelievable hands. He's a big guy. He's fantastic on the power play. He does so many things well, but some team's going to give him seven, seven and a half million dollars a year, and I don't think they can fit that in with everything else that they've got coming and with upgrading on the blue line and with, you know, wanting to be able to take a run at a Tavares if he happens to be available. And, like, if I'm Tavares, I am so frustrated with the Islanders I would definitely want out of there like it's been a sideshow and everything I hear is that Gar Snow's in big trouble so there's going to be some kind of a change and it's going to fall to whoever they bring in to replace Snow to really win Tavares back over because what a it's just a lost year this season they that team looked like it had so much promise two years ago and now it doesn't look like that anymore
2: well it almost might end up working out better for the Leafs if I don't know if maybe you think this is wrong, but if it's Tavares and not Stamkos, just based on the timelines, like, because I was thinking about it on the drive to practice today and it's a Wednesday, um, what their timeline is. And I was thinking, okay, this year, maybe they get in, maybe they don't next year. The expectation is not only should they get in, but they should maybe win a round or two. And then it's the year after that. Maybe they start actually being a contender and that's 2018, 19, In the summer of 2018, I think, is when Tavares is due. So then you start to look at that timetable, and it's like, if you add Tavares in the summer of 2018, and that's when you're starting to potentially be a cup team, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know. Is there anything else you you want to add on this, or should we move on?
1: Okay. Well, I almost wonder. The Leafs are on pace for 98 points right now. And obviously, they're they're on a hot streak, so maybe they'll come back a little bit from that. But... I look at the East, and there's not a lot of teams that really scare me that say, that say to me the Leafs are far away. If the kids are all going to take a step forward again next year, I mean, maybe you look at next year a little bit differently. Maybe you look at it like in— Right now, I think the Leafs have the 11th best record in the NHL. Maybe you look at next year, like, let's push into the top five or six. let Let's And then at the trade deadline, you can add another piece, and then you know maybe it's not as far away as we
2: thought. But does that mean they're a cup— contender next year because like i don't disagree i just think next year you look at winning a round or two like teams don't usually i guess the point is teams don't usually just go from being playoff well, maybe they do i don't know like I, i'm trying to think chicago. of chicago i think they lost i think they hate they i'm trying to think of their timetable i think they they lost the year before was it the series against vancouver third round i don't know what do you remember yeah
1: third round against detroit it was a I think that was when Detroit was still really good. Oh nine, right. Detroit went on to play Pittsburgh and they all played Pittsburgh but they lost that, that final. Marc Andre Fleury was brilliant at the end. But Chicago was this really young up and coming team with all these young guys like Keith and Taves and Kane, and then they won the next year. But they went all the way to the third round after having not made the playoffs for so long before that. So I the equivalent might kind of be the least making the third round this year maybe I'd have to go back and really look at that but that that team and the penguins team in oh five oh six, and they won the cup so that was 3 years after Crosby's first year you're you're probably right that that makes more sense i'm just wondering like they i think they really should look at the window that they've got with Matthews and Marner as cheap as they are because they're never going to be again
2: well that's a really good point because and and i think chicago is a perfect example i think taves was like 20 when they won the cup and and obviously kane is right in the same ballpark like maybe we have to change the perception of when teams are ready to contend and maybe it's just sooner and and the the benefit you have and it's the same thing maybe with edmonton is when you have these guys on entry-level contracts you can build a better team around them in the short term just because you're paying them not that much I Actually, I wrote
1: about this. I can't remember when it was. I think it was a couple of years ago about how many teams have won the cup in the cap era with stars on entry-level deals. Carolina did it with Eric Stahl as a big piece of theirs. Anaheim did it with Getzlaff and, and Perry on their entry-level deals, and they were a big piece of that. Uh, not Detroit in 08. 09, Pittsburgh. Crosby was out of his entry level, but Malkin was still on it. They had some other guys that were still on it. I think, was Latang on that team yet? They had some. They had some good players that were on entry level. Uh, then you get into Chicago where they had Kane and Taves in 2010. Um, I don't think L.A. fit that mold. But you know what I'm saying? Like there were Boston, I'm not sure. They. I don't think so. But you know what I mean? Like there have been a lot of examples of teams that have been able to do that.
2: Well, it's funny you mention that. I was trying to do so, uh, part of a story on... Cap Friendly has this thing where you can do cost per point. And so, like I was looking at it, and it it doesn't perfectly it doesn't it doesn't account for the bonuses. But like McDavid was the best in terms of cost per point. But but it, it doesn't work because it doesn't include his bonuses, which is why I didn't do it. But the point was the advantage it gives you and it gives the Leafs. You're not paying them anywhere near like they're worth. Like even if McDavid's cap it is like three seven seven or something, he's worth three four times that. So. That's your window, I guess.
1: The other thing, too, is when it's bonuses like that, you can push some of that to the following season, right? So you can really load up. Like the base salary is all that really counts against the cap. And then you've got a bonus overage that you can go into. So, you know, the Leafs can get into that situation. I mean, one thing that's probably going to happen with Leafs, they're going to have an overage this year for next year. And that's going to hurt their cap space next year. But they've got so much that, I mean, ideally, they want to save those overages for when they're contending. But they can get by next year with having some of them. It, it's gonna. I'm really fascinated to see what they do with all the cap space they're gonna have. They're gonna have a lot next year with losing all of that, all of those dead contracts. You know, you got to pay Zaitsev, but there's not really hardly anyone else. Some RFAs is it Brown and Hyman? I think that are gonna need deals. But and I mean maybe those guys. I don't know what you think those guys get three million something. in, I don't know. Do you get bridge deals to those guys? Because you're not sure what they do. But. Other than that, I mean they're gonna have that probably still leaves them with after those guys are all signed, probably leaves them with ten million or more to spend on I don't know what.
2: But again, it's like the long term picture that you always have to be in mind. And the one thing like we've it's different because this team is different, but you just don't want to just spend to spend, and I don't think they will. I think they're smarter than that. But anyway, there's one other thing I wanted to get to before we go. You and I both kinda of wrote about the rookie class you looked at it in nhl context how basically this has never happened i kind of looked at it from the leaf perspective basically every leaf rookie record is going to fall goals assists points power play points like anything you want to name it's done this year do you think there's an appreciation for that yet do you think we're getting to that point where people understand like this this doesn't happen like i asked babcock before the season and again recently as to whether he thought this could work, like where they'd have this many rookies playing, and I, I think the answer is no. He didn't think that they could play this many rookies and be good. Uh, what do you think?
1: I think like the diehard, like hardcore fans, probably the kind of fans that are listen listen to this thing every week. They are getting it because they just they know and they understand how unique this is, and they're reading some of the coverage. I was actually a bit surprised when I started digging into it. I was hoping. That I would find some teams in the 80s or the 70s or something that had done this and, and kind of comparing the Leafs to them and what happened eventually with those players or the, even the 90s. And I had a really hard time finding anybody like it, it's really interesting that the, I thought maybe the Leafs would be comparable to like what the Blackhawks did. The only one that really matched at all was that Pittsburgh team in 05-06, but they were the second-worst team in the league, and a lot of those rookies weren't very good. Like, their third-best or their fourth-best rookie was Colby Armstrong, which, like, no offense to Colby, but, like, they they weren't of of the caliber of the guys the Leafs have. The best match is that Winnipeg Jets team that Timo Solani was on, in terms of, like, they're going to finish ahead of the Leafs in terms of points generated by rookies. The Leafs won't be able to catch them. But goal-scoring was so much higher back then, and not only that, but Tamo didn't come over till he was 22. Kachuk didn't make the NHL uh, until he was 21. And the Russian guys were even older than that that they brought in. So it wasn't... I mean, I know the Leafs have some older rookies in Zaitsev and, and Hyman, but their best rookies are really young. And there hasn't been a team that's brought in... How many do they have that are in that? I can't remember how old Brown is now. But like, yeah, okay. So how, how, there hasn't been a team that's brought in four or five guys between 19 and 22 that have performed this well that I could find like it just it doesn't exist most of the teams that came up were 1979 80 only because that's the year the WHA merged into the NHL and hockey reference got confused and thought they were all rookies but they weren't they just played in the WHA I mean that's I don't know I I asked some of the Leafs players about it and I didn't end up using them quoting them in the piece just because they didn't really know what to say to that like it, it was like this has never happened before and they didn't really have a good like what are they supposed to say right? I mean it it's too bad actually that I would have liked to ask Lou Lamarello about it, but I'm not sure that he would give the kind of like it would almost you almost need someone to like give you like a philosophical answer about how unusual this is. maybe other people around the league or something could put it in a better context than than people that in the Leafs organization
2: well, I think that's the point like not only do they have a lot of rookies, but the rookies are good. Like, that's the difference. Like, I looked at teams just this year, like how many of their rookies they're playing, and the most is, like, Arizona and Chicago. Arizona's rookies are bad. Not bad. Like, they're just rookies, like usual rookies. In Chicago, their rookies are in depth roles. Like, their best players are still Kane and Taves and Keith and Crawford and those guys. Like, that's the difference, is their rookies are probably their best players or close to it. Like, Matthews is their best player, and he's 19. I think that's maybe not what's appreciated is that they're not only rookies, but they're playing and they're good. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So.
1: The other thing too is we've talked about this before, but I think the reason why we should go back and listen to our preseason podcast about where we projected they would be. I think we both thought they'd be around 85 points and like 10 points out of the playoffs and take a big step from last year. And we just didn't know that, it's not just like Matthews has surprised. I think all of the rookies have surprised this year. They've they've all met or exceeded expectations. There's no one that is disappointed. Uh,
2: I think Soshnikov's been like a little underwhelming, but then again like he's playing with Martin Goche, and Smith, so I don't, I don't know, he's not playing a lot. Um, but the one thing like that came up is interesting for me in talking to some of the players and Brown I think is actually 23. I think he just had a birthday. But the one thing he said that was really interesting is he said they've like basically they've empowered us and i think that's really interesting that that's how they feel like the young guys feel like they, i think they feel like ownership of it and feel comfortable actually just playing like he said we know if we make a mistake we're not going to be like pinned to the bench and maybe that's comes from babcock it must come from babcock
1: It's so weird, though, isn't it? Like, we've covered the NHL a long time and been in the dressing room, and it's almost never like that. Like, the rookies are never have ownership of the room. It's like almost if you bring in so many at the same time, then all of a sudden they have this big voice and that they're the identity of the team. Whereas normally, like, I I know, uh, I think Carrick has talked about this a little bit, how he felt like kind of an outsider when he came in as a young guy in Washington, and he was up and down, and, like, it was a veteran team and all that, and it was hard to... Like that team doesn't have your identity. You're just trying to hang around on the outside and be a fringe guy and try and adapt to what the team is. This team didn't really have a great identity because they pulled the whole middle out of it out of it last year, threw in all these great rookies, and all these guys are really confident. They're really like even even the Hymans and Brown and uh, they're I think they're all really comfortable in who they are and in their ability. They all feel like they belong there and. It it seems like they got most for the most part they got pretty good people in 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 the young players that they've got. Uh, there was a veteran reporter who came out of the dressing room who isn't there all the time who comes every three weeks or something. He came out of the dressing room a couple weeks ago and he's like, "That's a really good dressing room. That's like one of the best Leafs dressing room." And this is a guy who's covered the Leafs for twenty five thirty years. He's like, "That's one of the best Leafs dressing rooms I've ever been in in terms of like how good the people are, like to have conversations with and whatever." And I think that's probably accurate.
2: I'm always careful to like try to assume, but I know what you're saying. Like they they they're young. Like and and they're kind of the one thing like Martner said is they feel confidence to like make plays and not a, and he said like the one thing that he felt was like the veterans are comfortable when I have the puck. And like that I don't know, maybe that gives you like a boost. I think we have to go um so next week we need to make sure we talk about their fourth line because I don't know. It's a it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, anyway, I guess that's what we'll talk about. Maybe we'll talk some more about Riley Gardner and kind of how that whole thing shakes out. So
1: the only thing I was going to say is I hope they don't rush Riley back because it looks like some kind of an ankle injury could be a high ankle sprain, which takes a long time. We don't know for sure, but it seems like Babcock likes to really push guys to come back from injury. And I don't understand why, like, especially with a guy like that, and especially with an injury like that, like if it's any kind of an ankle injury. It's really difficult to skate with, just the way the, the, the boot is on the skate and the way that the, you have to move, and skating is such a big part of Riley's game. Like, I don't even know why he came back and tried to play. He played another shift. He looked terrible uh, against Buffalo. He was really struggling out there. So, you know, if you're a fan, that should be a concern that they try and rush him back. They really just give him the time to, to get better, even if that takes a few weeks and even if the Leafs start losing some games.
2: And that's going to be the big thing. Like, if they start losing, does that pressure to bring him back – increase because the one thing with babcock what you're pointing out is sometimes what ends up happening is someone will say when is he coming back and he'll say well i thought he was going to be back today and it kind of just gives you an underlying indication of how he thinks about these things so we'll see uh yeah
1: the McElhaney thing was really weird because i had a really good source tell me that he was hurt in the morning skate in on the friday and then they garrett sparks called up in the morning so i reported that 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 mcalhaney was hurt and he wasn't sure if he could play or not was basically what was going on. I wasn't saying that he wasn't going to play and then he ended up starting. I don't know if they they like told him you're the new guy, you got to play or if he felt better or what happened, but it just it just feel I remember Dan Winnick last year was the one that really stood out. He had some kind of like an ankle injury or something like that. It was affecting his skating and it seemed like they made him play through it and it to his detriment. Was that was last year, right? 2 years, Two years ago? I think so. No, last year they traded a member. That's how they got Carrick and like at the end of midway through last year. Yeah. But so Winnick two years ago was really good. They re signed him to a two year deal. Last year he got injured really early on. It affected how, how useful he was. And I think it's because he was playing through that. That's just my perception of it.
2: But well, and even with Matt Hunwick, like I don't know how healthy he was when he came back. And he even hinted the other day that, you know, that was an issue for him early this season, that he didn't feel great. So we'll see. So anyway, we'll do this next week. Thank you for listening, and thanks, James.
0: Thanks for tuning in to The Leaf Report. Follow the guys on Twitter, at Jonas Siegel and at Myrtle.